Welcome everyone to Health or Consequences, a monthly podcast by Mass Inc. and Commonwealth Magazine. I'm John McDonough, one of your hosts from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Paul Haddis, formerly of the Tufts University School of Medicine. We are re-engineering our podcast a little bit. We're going to organize it in the future under cutting-edge questions and then bring in the best people we could possibly imagine to be our guests to talk about the question. So today's question is, is the Massachusetts healthcare cost control model still working? Or does it need a new engine? Do we need a new car? How is it working? And our guest today we are delighted to have is Dr. Stuart Altman, who is the Salt Shaken Professor of National Health Policy at the Heller School at Brandeis University. He has been deeper into health policy than any of us can remember. Just a little detail, his first health policy assignment was in the 1970s under the Nixon administration, running healthcare wage and price controls for the nation. That's how he got his baptism by fire in health policy, and he's been going full steam ever since. He's with us today because he's also the chair of the Board of Commissioners of the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission, which is the public organization established back in 2012 with the obligation to monitor the Massachusetts healthcare system and to blow the whistle when spending goes out of control. And Paul and I, who keep our ears to the ground, have heard some whistles. And so we're here to talk to Stuart about that. And so to get the conversation going, without further ado, I'm going to hand it off to my colleague, Paul Haddis. Thank you, John. And Stuart, welcome to joining us. Really appreciate uh, you doing this with us today. A couple of days from today, as our audience is hearing this podcast, your commission is holding its annual public meeting on cost trends for the state's healthcare system. Leading up to that though, you and your colleagues have adopted a cost trends report with a number of new recommendations that seem to reflect to us somewhat of a pessimistic view, perhaps the most in the HPC's history about the future of growing healthcare system costs. What are those key concerns? Well, first of all, let me uh, restructure your question a little bit. I don't view it as a sort of a negative comment about where we've been, rather an assessment uh, of where we should be going. Actually, I am very proud uh, of the activities in the state of Massachusetts uh, over these last almost 10 years. Uh, if you look back on 2012, no state was really even in the game in terms of trying to control health spending other than the state of Maryland. And that's really a one-off state with a lot of unique characteristics that really aren't applicable in other areas. So here was state of Massachusetts, thanks to people like John McDonough, who had moved forward in the 2000 to create a true, uh, as best as possible, national health insurance model in 2006, with a commitment that in the future would try to control healthcare spending. And uh, yeah, it was a give and take 
in terms of compromise to pass what would became known as Section 224 in 2012. And it did some amazingly of pathfinding things. For example, it's the first state and only state that said we're concerned about total healthcare spending, not just our Medicaid spending, that we are going to set up a semi-independent commission, as you pointed out, to analyze what's going on and point fingers where things can be improved. And we've been amazingly successful. You know, let's face it, Massachusetts is a wonderful state with a phenomenal group of entities that really provide first-class medical care, but it's also very expensive. And it was the most expensive state in the United States when it came to healthcare. Since 2012, our growth rate has been under that in the US. We are no longer the most expensive state, thanks to the state of Alaska. Uh, in addition, our growth rate is almost in the average for the country. And so we've been amazingly successful. But it is also the case that over the last couple of years, the growth rate, while not way above what's going on in the rest of the country, is exceeding what we call our benchmark, which, uh, which was set first at 3.6 and now at 3.1. And so we are saying, all right, we've been successful. Many other states are adopting or adopting part of our model, um, but could we be more successful in the future uh, given the complexity of our system and the recommendations we've put forth uh, in our cost trends report, which will be discussed next Wednesday, sort of try to take us to that new uh, frontier. So I view it as a success that we hope will continue. So, so Stuart, we notice in the recommendations next week for the first time that the commission is suggesting that we actually impose state mandated cost controls on some of the highest cost providers. Seems like a strong departure from how the commission has done its work. How should we look at that? How should we understand that recommendation uh, as far as you and the commissioners have uh, framed it? Well, let's take a look at what's happened over these uh, ten, almost 10 years. Um, first of all, we have substantial price differentials between uh, our uh, most expensive delivery systems, which turn out to be among our quote unquote, best known if not highest quality systems. And those price differentials between the high end um, entities and the low-end entities, which often are our community hospitals and our individual physicians, that gap has continued without abatement. And not only that, one of the there are several aspects of our system that we've tried to improve, which is that we as a, a state disproportionately use our most expensive facilities for even basic healthcare, much of which, some of which could be done in less expensive facilities. We're not talking about the sickest people who need to go to our big academic medical centers, 
but fairly routine care that's now being done in these centers that could be done in, in community hospitals or in clinics and so on. So our recommendations say, you know, if we're gonna take uh, this activity to the next level, we need to sort of slow down the top end. Uh, the, the top end uh, institutions, not only do they have high prices, but they're the ones that are financially in the best position. And many of our community hospitals are teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. It's forced a number of them reluctantly to either close or to affiliate or to be bought over by the big institutions. And in the long run, we don't believe that's a very, that's, that's a, a model that we want to continue. So you're correct. We are suggesting that we do things a little, do things differently going forward than we've done in the past. And by the way, we're sort of building on what has become the recommendation from a number of very well-known health economists, one of whom testified last year, Dr. Chernow from your great school of Harvard, School of Public Health and Healthcare, um, and also Lemoy Daphne, who's in the your business school. So we're we're trying we're adopting recommendations that have been proposed uh, by others, which we think can leave our system stronger. And by the way, we have no interest in clipping the wings of our best institutions. We want them to continue to fly, but we want them to fly in an environment that doesn't destroy uh, the other parts of our health system. Would, would this change that you're suggesting require an act of the legislature to do, or does the commission have the power itself to make this happen? We do not have that power. We are not a technical regulatory body. Our, as you know well, John, um, what we do is write reports, singling out areas that need improvement. And where things occur, like big mergers or acquisitions, we rec make recommendations to either the attorney general for antitrust activities or to the state where it has responsibility in terms of uh, what we call certificate or determination of need. Um, and it's those entities that have the ultimate authority. What we're essentially giving the legislature uh, a blueprint, which they can adopt or not, um, to say, well, if you really want to control spending in the future, this is our recommendation of, okay. but we need the authority from the legislature. And then one quick question. Um, since on your board of commissioners sits the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mary Lou Sutters, can we assume from that that the Baker administration is on board with this recommendation or is that not clear? Well, I mean, she supported the uh, recommendation of the uh, commission. She did not indicate uh, that uh, she was opposed. She didn't, I wanna make it very clear. She didn't say that the Baker administration supports it, but she didn't say that it 
is against it either, but she did support the recommendation. Okay. Stuart, to press a little bit, my underlying question, I'll use the word worry rather than pessimism. At the last two board meetings, uh, you have risen to speak uh, when, when, the, when the recommendations were being discussed about some of your concerns, whether it's about coding, facility fees, or you uh, spent some time uh, verbalizing some concern over the almost double digit price increases that not just our highest paid hospitals, but other hospitals are asking for. So uh, are, are those real concerns for you that are gonna lead to um, in some ways in, uh, a substantial increase potentially in, in some of the overall spending for the state? Well, there's no question that I, I did indicate some areas of real concern. I mean, I can tick some of them off. Uh, one of them I already mentioned. I do think that we use our most expensive facilities too much, that individuals um, should be um, going for fairly routine care to other institutions. Uh, we do that at the hospital level. We also do that at the long-term care level. As you pointed out, um, we are concerned about the fact that every year the system seems to generate the fact that our patients are a lot sicker. And as you know, Paul, you know, year in, year to year, we as a as a population don't get that much sicker. Uh, and the fact that the that the statistics that are being used by these institutions suggest that we're five percent sicker a year and a year out a year in, and they admit, in fact, when we talk to them that their patients aren't sicker, they say that they're just improving the codes. Well, give me a break. I mean, this has been going on for ten years, and the codes keep getting implying that they're sicker. So we want to dig in deeper into these codes um, to see what's going on. I mean, these are codes that have been accepted by the payers that have been generated by our research community, but we're very uncomfortable with them. We don't have a clear indication of how they should be changed, but we do know that there's something wrong with them. So Stuart, can we say for the benefit of our listeners, when you say the high cost institutions, we can infer from that that you mean MGB, Mass General Brigham, formerly partners. Is that it? Are there other large systems out there that you view with similar concern and worry? Well, most of our academic health centers are above or substantially above the community hospitals. You have to include in that children's hospital. You have to include in that in different ways. The other academic medical centers like Beth Israel or now Beth Israel Leahy um, are above the average um, uh, UMass. Uh, but these are at lower levels, um, Boston Medical Center, lower levels than the Mass General Brigham hospitals or children's but they are higher than the community hospitals. And again, um, you know, we're not trying, you know, I have a lot of respect for our leading academic institutions and our activities in no way should be viewed as, as trying to de destroy them. 
On the other hand, a well-balanced delivery system uh, for a whole state requires a much more of a, a mix of delivery systems, not only the high end. Stuart, I wonder if I can move you then to talk a little bit about the system overall and the expansion issue. You know, at the national level, that the Biden administration is intensifying its antitrust oversight of anti-competitive practices, including in healthcare. And just very recently, we read that Speaker Mariano is expressing specific concern about the growth and expansion by our large providers, and in this case, pointing to the Mass General Brigham expansion in the ambulatory care space, and mentioned that uh, it might be out this week as well, potentially some legislative language going forward dealing with that whole determination of need expansion issue. Should the state stop or limit consolidation or these kinds of expansions by our major providers that we've noted? And should the HPC and the Attorney General each be given more involved role, roles in either reviewing or overseeing some of these capital projects as compared to the present? Well, one of the things I've learned in this job is our antitrust uh, authorities are pretty cumbersome. Um, they would design in the turn of the century of the last century, um, mainly for meatpacking plants and for other types of activities. And we've been trying to, uh, to apply them to a much more dynamic and a much more complicated healthcare system. And I don't think they do a particularly good job. Um, and because antitrust, when you really dig into it, really focuses on a few items uh, as opposed, like for example, it really doesn't do a good job in terms of access. It's mainly aimed at prices. So um, uh, we are concerned that, that just allowing the big to get bigger could turn out to be an, a problem. Again, as I said before, we believe we need a balanced system with a vibrant community hospital and community physician uh, uh, availability of services, as well as our academic, which is what many other states have. I mean, we're very top heavy in a way, which is a good thing because it provides good quality care, but it's also a very expensive thing. I assume you so, mean when, when you say get big, get, get bigger, you don't just mean by acquisition, but but some of the, the expansions where the where the systems themselves build out is also in, in, in the scope of your concern. So what, you know, we're in the process of reviewing the MGB expansion plans that you've talked about. And I don't want to prejudge this, those activities. Our staff has not come back to us yet with their report, um, but we're gonna look at it. Um, you don't wanna really totally restrict um, our big institutions from legitimate growth and, um, and also to prepare themselves for the next century, which is what they're saying. The question is whether there is a legitimate role to be played by the state beyond what an individual group or series of groups like MGB 
thinks it's in their best interest to do. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Stuart, there's something I noticed when I was looking through the cost trends report on the commission's website, which I encourage everybody to look at because it's just so rich with interesting insights. And one of the things when you get just a little bit below the surface, Massachusetts has been exceeding its benchmark going back to 2018 and 19. But if you go down below what you observe, and tell me if I got this right, is that Medicare spending in the state has been significantly above the benchmark, but commercial insurance, which covers uh, most of the families in the state, has actually been significantly below the benchmark. Um, is that telling? Does that tell us something significant? Uh, if it's just Medicare that's the cause, then it's, it's all Medicare. on the federal dime, or is that not true? It's Medicaid. Medicaid has been above. But, and the reason why Medicaid spending has been above, remember, we're talking about spending now. Mm -hmm. And Medicaid spending is being driven by enrollment growth. And so what happened for Medicaid is that as uh, the pandemic um, eliminated jobs, people lost their commercial insurance and went on the Medicaid rolls, which shot up their enrollment and their spending. Mm -hmm. Medicare itself has not been growing. It's been growing because of enrollment. One of the things that's happening both in this state and around the country is that Medicare has been controlling its rate per unit by holding back what its growth rates are, but its spending is going up because of more and more people reaching age 65. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we have this dynamic. You have Medicare, you have Medicaid, and you have commercial. And what we, we have done, which makes our state pretty unique, is that our constraints have slowed the commercial spending, mm -hmm. where in other parts of the country, the commercial is just running rampant. But it's also still true that if you look at that report, we have some institutions that are being paid close to 300% of Medicare, and that the average is close to 200% of Medicare. So the commercial rates are being held somewhat back compared to the national, but they're still significantly higher than Medicare and Medicare. Stuart, let me ask you then um, some of the, the, the a national related question, because I know over the years, you know, you've been out talking to people in other states about what's happening in Massachusetts and your comments earlier about uh, the success of the initial 2012 law in your mind. You know, and some states are beginning to emulate that model. Uh, as you look at the world today, would you still recommend that they follow our approach or would you suggest a more Maryland style of uh, tougher cost controls and a little bit more governmental regulation is where they should be headed. What are you uh, hearing from colleagues around the country as they think about these things with you? Well, you have, listen, we're dealing with technical but political issues. These states need to sort of learn how to crawl before they walk or run. And they, the reason why they're so interested in our model 
is that it's a quasi-regulatory as opposed to a full-blown regulatory system. As you pointed out in the, my, the introduction, John, to my life, I had the unique pleasure or pain of being the only individual that ran a national regulatory model for total healthcare spending in the early 70s. And I wanna tell your listeners, being a regulator in healthcare is no easy job. <laughs> and it's not for the faint of heart. Not only that, but it's also pretty complicated and you can really get it wrong. Um, you know, people have this view, view, well, all right, if the government regulates, all is gonna be beautiful. All the pieces are gonna fit together in just the right way. Well, that's, that's a possibility, but it's also a possibility all the pieces go in the wrong direction and you can have chaos. So regulation should not be taken as a first shot. And so what I'm, I think these other states have done, which is why we've, we've, cho we've become such a good role model is to try to emulate what we set out to do in the beginning, which is to get a, to have groups like the Health Policy Commission and CHIA, first of all, generate the kind of information, John, that you see in our report. We know in Massachusetts much more about the, how things work in our state than other states know about their own state. And that's very helpful. And so what we're recommending and what some states are doing is A, developing a better data system, and then a health policy-like commission, which tries to sort of gain a better policy sense of what to do. The idea of jumping from nothing into a highly regulated system like Maryland is a really dangerous game. And as I pointed out, I would, Maryland itself is not a model that a state can do without very strong federal help. I don't know if you know this, Paul, but I think you do. And I know John does. Maryland survives with a huge amount of extra money being generated by the federal Medicare program to balance its spending. Um, so yeah, it's an all-payer system, uh, but it, it, it is not something that could happen without the federal government willingness to take on a much bigger financial role. And I don't see the federal government doing that. They're willing something. to do it in Maryland because they think it's a good learning tool. But I don't something. see the federal government saying we're willing to do it in other states. So, so Stuart, we're, we're talking and we're still in the age of the COVID-19 pandemic, still going on. Um, as you formulate your recommendations in the commission, do you have some caution about, gosh, now's not a good time to beat up on the healthcare sector when they're on the front lines battling the COVID pandemic? And uh, does it just strike a discordant note while we're trying to pull together and pull out of this terrible national calamity? Does that factor into your thinking and recommendations at all? Well, first of all, I would say it almost the opposite. What's happened in the pandemic is that our bigger 
well-funded institutions are doing much better and our poor um, uh, hospitals that are just survivor in much worse shape. And so the pandemic has made the winners better winners and the losers more losers. So um, I, so that's the first thing. The second thing we're talking about, we're talking about the future when the pandemic is over. But I think the pandemic did lay bare what is happening between, as I said, winners and losers. And the problem, not only in this state, but around the country, is that what matters to an institution is not whether it's a high quality or a low quality, it's what its patient mix looks like. And those that have primarily privately insured are doing okay. And those that are treating primarily Medicare and Medicaid are not doing okay. I don't think that's a very healthy environment. So we need to do something about that. And again, our recommendations are really for the future, but I would not, you should not think of them as being of uh, making things worse in the pandemic, quite the opposite. Uh, we may need to meet, and I think the, the speaker's um, op-ed piece makes that clear that he wants to see those struggling community hospitals have a better shot at survival. And I think our recommend, well, I know our recommendations are designed to do just that. Stu, as we're heading towards the, the close of our discussion with you, and you mentioned, you know, your recommendations are aimed towards the future, but let's personalize that to you. You know, as somebody chair of the HPC since 2012, been in uh, healthcare policy since the early 70s. Where do you see the U.S. healthcare system heading generally, and what role uh, is Stuart Albany going to continue to play, uh, either at a national or statewide level, to to make? Uh, improvements in, in uh, our ability to uh, navigate through it? Well, first of all, your answer to your second question first, um, I very much have enjoyed this role as chair of the uh, Massachusetts Health Policy Commission. I'm very proud to be a, a member of that commission and to be in the state of Massachusetts. Whether I continue in this role really depends uh, on the governor and, uh, and my own uh, health, which right now is pretty good. Good to hear uh, that. So, you know, I take it day for day and try to do the best job I can as long as I'm doing it. Um, with respect to our system, um, what I've learned about it is that we, are going to spend in healthcare any amount of money that the system is giving it. I'm a big believer that we spend more because we spend more. Now that may sound a little tautological, but one of, we have a health system that has continued to pour huge amounts of money into it. And lo and behold, the system spends that money, but it doesn't always spend it in the right way as you guys know. So if we wanna slow the spending, we need to slow the spending. 
Unfortunately, the way we're slowing the spending is by cutting the spending by on the part of government, particularly Medicare and Medicaid, leaving the private spending to continue to grow. And that's why this gap between what private people pay and what the government pays is getting wider and wider. I mean, uh, you know, if you go back even to even 2000 to 2000, even 2010, the gap was, I don't know, 50, 40, 50%. Now it's like two, 300%. And by the way, in some states, it's much greater than it is here. So we need to do something about that. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I mean, it, and it has to be done. It, it, a, a lot of it can be done at the state level but we need to get the feds more involved. Right now, the feds um, and I as, uh, are not primarily thinking about their own spending. Mm -hmm. And you know, when I chaired PROPAC many years ago, I did too, I worried about the Medicare program. And that's what's happening now. We have MedPAC, which is a wonderful organization, but it's primarily focused on what is Medicare doing? Well, I'm sorry. I think the federal government needs to have responsibility beyond the Medicare program, just like we in the state are trying to look at the total spending. So um, I think we got some work to do. And for the next generation of health policy people, uh, there's going to be a lot for them to do. That's the good news and the bad news, I guess. Yeah. Dr. Stuart Altman, chair of the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts, wisdoms, and reactions, and good luck in the future. And thanks to my colleague, Paul Haddis, and we will be back at Health for Consequences with another program next month. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.